Let me pray as we come to the passage in front of us. Lord, we know that uh, we are sinful people and uh, our hearts are often far from you. We come, we draw close to you, we draw near with our, with our lips, but our hearts are somewhere else. And we pray now as we come and sit under your word and as you come and speak to us through your word by your spirit, Lord, we pray that you'd give us attentive minds and uh, responsive and willing hearts to receive all that you have to say to us. And we pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Okay, uh, this is the second of these parables. And the question is, how, how can good and evil exist side by side in this world? Uh, why, why doesn't God kind of uh, rip out all the weeds? Why doesn't he root out all the evil that's in the world? Tragedy, tragedies uh, happen, horrific accidents devastate people's uh, lives. Tyrants and bullies force their own plans on the world and, and crush anybody who stands in their way. So why doesn't God do something about that? That's a question that, that many people, many people who are not yet Christians, ask. Some, it's, it's a stumbling block uh, to a lot of people. And it's, it's a challenge to us, too, as, as believers, as, as Christians. If, if Jesus is God's king, bringing in God's kingdom, why isn't it here yet? Why is it such a long time coming? See, in, in trying to make... Uh, what this parable helps us to do, I think, today is to, to try and make sense of uh, the world in which we live. And when you try to make sense of things, uh, we, we veer to one of two extremes, I think. We, we, we veer towards undue optimism on the one hand, that things are bound to get better and better as we try to capture the world for Jesus. Or on the other hand, we kind of veer towards a kind of resigned cynicism. Uh, things that just seem to be going from bad to worse. Uh, so let's just batten down the hatches and uh, just wait for Jesus to return. Uh, there's a teaching uh, which is quite popular in today's church, particularly in the States, but it's not, it's not long before things are in the States come over to Australia, unfortunately. Um, but there's a, there's a, a teaching, and, and, and I, I hope I'm not going to offend anybody by saying this, because it may be that there are people here in this congregation this morning who've been influenced by this teaching. It's, it's sometimes called the rapture. Uh, maybe you've heard of the, the Left Behind movies. And uh, yeah, uh, that's a terrible kind of cheesy, terrible series of cheesy Christian uh, movies based on very bad theology. And, and the, uh, the idea is that uh, before Jesus returns, he will snatch, snatch up all the Christians and rapture them away and uh, leave the unbelievers in charge of the world. It's a scary thought. I've never seen those movies. I've read used to read some of the, the books that uh, the movies were based on. It's, it's a very scary thought. Actually, I think uh, when those movies came out, they were put almost into the category of horror. Uh, it's a hor horrifying idea, isn't it? That uh, suddenly one day you go out there and all the Christians have disappeared. They've just left their clothes behind. And uh, the unbelievers are in charge of the world. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. 
Jesus is not going to root out the evildoers or snatch away the Christians, is he? Didn't you read the parable? Both will continue side by side, he says, right up to the very end, the wheat and the weeds, the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one, good and evil coexisting right up to judgment day. That's what this parable is teaching us. As much as we might like you know, God to remove all the evil from the world, mercifully, he's not going to do that. And this parable tells us why. The Scottish theologian James Denny says that both the optimist who thinks that the world is getting better and the pessimist who says that the world is getting worse, they're both wrong. He says, it is a progress in which good and evil alike come to maturity, bearing the ripest fruit, showing all they can do, proving their strength to the utmost against each other. The progress, says Denny, is not in good itself or in evil itself, but in the antagonism of the one to the other. Is this world getting better or is it getting worse? Both. This world is getting better and it's getting worse at the same time. The good seed is, is, is growing. The, the sons of the kingdom are springing up all over the, the globe. The gospel is going out and people are getting converted. The good seed is growing and producing an abundant harvest. The grain on one stalk is much more now than the little seed that was cast into the ground. And the weeds are growing, too. With every week that passes, they're, they're larger and more deeply rooted than before. And that's the teaching of Jesus in this parable. So let's take a look at it. It speaks to us of two things. I've just got two points this morning. I feel a bit kind of uneven with just two points, but there we go. <laughs> uh, it speaks to us about present, our present reality. But it also points us to a future certainty. Those are the two things I want to say this morning. First of all, it explains, this parable explains our present reality. It helps us understand the world that we live in. When, when I look at the state of the world today, I see good and evil side by side, vying with each other. Look, just look at world history. Some of us have been along, around long enough to be part of world history. Uh, you may be able to think back even to the last century, as I can. And uh, the last century was, to be, was supposed to be the century when the human race really evolved towards utopia. Well, if you know anything about history, you know that didn't happen. And you'll see, uh, when you look at world history, that every time evil gets pushed down, it rises up again, doesn't it? In an even more sinister form. Even after 2,000 years of Christianity, the world is much the same as it has always been. There are still wars and rumors of war. The wheat and the weeds grow together. When I look into my own heart, I find good and evil side by side. And the good that I want to do, I don't do it. And the evil that I don't want to do, I find myself doing that. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. And that fits with my reality anyway. When I look into my own heart, and into my own life. And even in the church, you know, we're told 
Uh, we're told Jesus chose 12. And one of them was a demon. One of them was a devil. That's in John chapter 6 and verse 70, in case you thought I just made that up and threw it out. So if you're looking for a perfect church, you're not going to find one, are you? And of course, if you do find one, please don't join it. <laughs> but don't use this either as an excuse for walking away from the church. You know, people sometimes say, well, I don't go to church anymore because it's full of hypocrites. And, you know, the answer to that, of course, is there's always room for one more. <laughs> so, so wherever we look, you know, this, what Jesus is saying here fits with our experience of, of reality. The wheat and the weeds grow together. That very much is in accord with, that, with our experience. Now, notice two things, then, about the wheat and the weeds. Two things that you wouldn't necessarily know unless uh, you were a horticulturist or, or maybe some kind of environmental scientist. The wheat and the weeds are indistinguishable, at least when they first begin to grow. Uh, there's a very specific word that's used here uh, in, in the Greek to describe this particular weed. This isn't your common or garden weed. This is bearded darnel. Sounds like something from Star Wars, doesn't it? <laughs> but it's a poisonous weed. It's extremely toxic. In fact, it's, it's big, in a big enough dose, it would kill a human being. And it, and it looks so much like wheat, it, it's sometimes called wheat's evil twin. It's indistinguishable from the wheat. That's why it's so dangerous, of course. And you notice that this, this, this weed doesn't just kind of appear, it doesn't just spring up. It's planted there by an enemy. Look what it says in verse 25. His enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat and, and left. This is germ warfare. This is bioterrorism. This is agricultural sabotage. The farmer has a rival. He has a competitor who, who sets out deliberately to destroy the crop. And, and, and again, isn't that our present reality? According to Jesus in verse 38, uh, the field is the world. Notice that, by the way. Sometimes people take this parable and apply it to the church. No, this, this parable is not about the church directly. It has something to say about the church in the world, but it's about the world. The field is the world. And in the world today, there are two kingdoms. There are two forms of reality side by side, vying for your allegiance. There are two agendas, if you like. There's the agenda of Christ and his kingdom, and there's the agenda of the enemy. There are these two seeds in the world, the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one. That's the... That's the the wheat and the weeds. They're people. We're not talking now about, like in the first parable, about seeds. We're talking about people. The sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one. And there have always been these two people in the world. Right from the very beginning, you can go back right to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 3, and to the very first announcement of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is one of the great texts of the Bible. Remember what uh, we read there in Genesis chapter 3, and verse 15? The first time the gospel was preached, it was preached to Satan. It wasn't good news for him. 
Listen to what God says to Satan. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. There's the gospel. <laughs> the seed of the woman. Someone is going to be born into the human race who will turn the tables on Satan, who will crush Satan's head and destroy the works of the devil. But the whole story of the human race then, from the very beginning, you see, is about this struggle between the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That's, that's one of the key things for understanding the, the storyline of the Bible. God is going to send into the world the serpent crusher, the saviour, and Satan is determined to put a stop to that. And he uses people in that way. So straight away in the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 4, it begins to play out in, in the story of uh, Cain and Abel, doesn't it? Two brothers, one a murderer and the other his victim. And so it continues down throughout the whole of human history, right down to the present time. What I'm saying is this, there is an enemy who is implacably opposed to God's rule on earth and who is intent on sabotaging it. There is a personal, malevolent, supernatural being at work in this world called Satan, the devil. And, and, and he sows weeds among the wheat. That's his strategy, to destroy the work of God. Look at verse 25. While his men were sleeping, it says, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. While they were sleeping... And when the plants sprouted and produced grain, it says, then the weeds also appeared. Now, how did that happen? When they woke up from their sleep, how did that happen? An enemy did this, Jesus says. An enemy. How easy it is, you know, to fall asleep on the job, isn't it? How easy it is for us to forget that there is an enemy. Or, uh, you know, even when we admit that there is an, an enemy, uh, we often think of the enemy in purely human terms. You know, what's happening in the political realm or in the social order. And of course, yes, there is, uh, there's, uh, the enemy is active in those areas. But we forget that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. There are principalities and powers in the heavenly places that are seeking to destroy the work of Christ in this world. You remember what Jesus told his disciples um, when he was going to the cross? He, was, he, he, he started to tell them, to prepare them for the cross. And, and you remember what Peter said? <laughs> no way, Jose. <laughs> That's not going to happen to you. And, and what did Jesus say to Peter? Oh, thanks, thanks, Peter, for caring so much for me. I, I really appreciate your concern. <laughs> Is that what Jesus said? No, he said, get behind me, Satan. Peter, don't you realize that there is an enemy? Don't you realize that there's an enemy who is trying to divert me from going to the cross, from doing my Father's will? Don't you realize? Don't you realize that there is no other way for sinners to be saved than for me to go to the cross? For the seed to fall into the ground and die? If that doesn't happen, 
there will be no harvest. Don't you realize, Peter, he says, there's an enemy. Such a powerful prophecy there in Genesis chapter 3, isn't it? Pointing us to the cross. In order for there to be Christians in the world, the cross has to happen. In order for there to be sons of the kingdom, Jesus has to die. Such a powerful prophecy. The seed of the woman, born of the Virgin Mary, the seed of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. Such a powerful prophecy, pointing us to the cross. With the bruised heel of his crucified humanity, he stamped on Satan's head. So this is, this is the reality, isn't it, behind so much that's happening in our world today. It's spiritual warfare. You, you see it in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, as the word is preached on the day of Pentecost, and, and the, the, the harvest comes. Thousands of people are converted. The, the seeds, the, the, the sons of the kingdom spring up there on the day of Pentecost, don't they? Thousands are brought to faith in Jesus, and immediately what happens? The enemy gets to work, persecuting the church from the outside... But more sinister than that, counterfeiting Christians on the inside. Do you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? What was their problem? Well, they were pre pretending to be what they were not. So much harm is done by that kind of hypocrisy in the church, isn't it? When he was a young lawyer in South Africa, uh, Gandhi was very interested in Christianity. He was a real... He'd read the Sermon on the Mount. He, he, he was really interested in Jesus. And uh, he tried to go to church. It was back in the days of apartheid. He tried to join a, a reformed church. But he was turned away because of the color of his skin. It poisoned him permanently against Christianity. He said, I'd become a Christian if I could find one. And you may well ask, well, how could that happen? An enemy did it. An enemy did it. This is how he works. This is how he operates. This is his strategy. He sows wheat amongst he sows weeds amongst the wheat. The other thing that, that we need to notice about this the, the wheat and the weeds is this. It's, it's not only that the wheat and the weeds are indistinguishable at first, but they are intertwined. Their roots are entangled. So that you, you can't actually pull up the weeds without uprooting the wheat. Look at, look at verse 28. When the servants want to go and rip up the weeds, Jesus says, let, let both grow together until the harvest. Let both grow together. And aren't you glad Jesus said that? I mean, just think about it. What if, what if God were to rip out all the weeds today and root out all the evil from the world? Where would that leave you? John Chapman said once, uh, if you're going to call the garbage man, make sure you climb out of the bin. Don't be too impatient, you know, for God to root out all the evil because there's a lot of evil in you, isn't there, and in me. And what about your kids and your grandchildren who are not yet Christians? What a mercy it is that God has not yet separated the wheat from the weeds. Let both grow together until the harvest, he says. That is the kindest and the... And the uh, 
That is the kindness and the patience of God towards us, isn't it? Not wishing that any should perish. Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He doesn't want anyone lost. Those who are weeds today may be wheat tomorrow, said the great St. Augustine. That was his testimony. He knew all about uh, sowing his wild oats when he was a young man. His mother, Monica, prayed for him and been praying for him for years. And, 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 and God wonderfully answered her prayers eventually. And maybe somebody's been praying for you for years. Maybe somebody was praying for you before you were ever born. And sometimes God takes a long time to answer prayers. But Augustine was wonderfully converted to Christ in August 386 AD. What if judgment had happened in AD, in AD 385? <laughs> what if the world had ended then? What would become of him then? What about you? How many of you have become Christians, say, in the last 30 years, or in the last 20 years, or in the last 10 years? How many of you have become Christians this year? Aren't you glad Jesus didn't come back before that? I became a Christian on November, that's what I can tell uh, from my diary entries. I became a Christian on November the 13th, 1966, at the age of 17, way before mm, many of you were born. <laughs> what if Jesus had come back in 1965? I would be, I would be eternally lost. Because back in 1965, I grew up in a, in a church-going family, Back in 1965, I was a weed amongst the wheat. Attending church three times on a Sunday out of just to keep the peace because I didn't want to be there. <laughs> but unconverted. What about you? Just don't, don't assume that you're a Christian just because you're in church because the wheat and the weeds grow together the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil ones side by side even in the same pew perhaps but don't despair either God is kind and patient with us he is slow to anger the Bible says and swift to show mercy and those who are weeds today may be wheat tomorrow so let me just apply this before I move on to the, the last of the second point. You see, in this world, the wheat and the weeds grow together. That's what we're being told. Yeah, and this means that your roots as a believer will be intertwined with the roots of people whose nature is very different from yours. And that'll be true wherever you are, whether it's at work or whether it's in a family, whether it's at uni. You'll find, even in your own family, that there are relationships that can be very difficult because your roots are, are intertwined. And you see, what Jesus is saying to you this morning is this. Don't pull up the roots. You can't pull up the roots. You can't pull up the weeds without, at the same time, pulling up the wheat. Let both grow together until harvest, he's saying. In other words, stay, stay where God has sovereignly placed you in his providence, in that family in that job that he's provided for you. 
Don't go off to a monastery or whatever the evangelical equivalent of that may be. Don't retreat into some holy huddle singing praise songs. Stay where you are. Engage there where you are. Where there are no ideal spots in this world. Wherever Christ sows his people, Satan sows his weeds. So, so bloom where you're planted. And remember, those people with whom your life is intertwined, those who are weeds today may well be wheat tomorrow. And remember this as well, Cornerstone. The mission of the church, please hear this. The mission of the church is sowing seeds, not pulling weeds. Do you hear that? We've got a big enough challenge on our hands trying to deal with sin in our own hearts and in our own families and our own churches. It's not in our power or in our calling to root it out of the world. That's the work of Christ. And he will do it when he comes. You remember Paul's words to the Corinthians? What have I to do with judging outsiders? There's an awful lot of judging outsiders on Facebook, you know, on the posts of Christians on Facebook. What have I to do with judging outsiders, he says. It's, it, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. There's far too much weeding going on amongst Christians and far too little sowing. The mission of the church is sowing seeds, not pulling weeds. There's, there's, there's far too much petitioning of governments going on. And I'm, please don't misunderstand me. I, I value Martin's ministry. And I think what he said to you this morning was very helpful and very necessary. And we do need to lobby and we do need to petition the government. But, you know, we, we're more, much more into that, you know, than we are actually petitioning the throne of grace for sinners to be saved. There are no conversions happening in our churches. Oh, well, we can write a petition to the government and complain about, well, but try and start a prayer meeting. Nobody turns up except the faithful few. Do you see what I'm saying? Our mission is to sow seeds and to water those seeds with prayer. That there might be a harvest of souls saved in this city. Our business is sowing seeds, not pulling up weeds. A friend of mine on Facebook, um, a man I, I greatly admire and, and respect in lots of ways, fine Christian man in lots of ways. He takes on a different persona on Facebook. <laughs> He's very, very angry with Trump. He's so angry with Trump that he sounds like Trump. <laughs> it's sad. It really is sad. And he's expecting Trump to behave like a Christian. Trump isn't a Christian. He needs the grace of God to change his heart, doesn't he? We shouldn't be pulling up weeds in the world. We should be sowing seed in people's lives and hearts. That is the main business of the church. So this is the present reality. There's sowing and growing right now, okay? But thank God, no mowing yet. <laughs> the kingdom is coming, but, but judgment for now is delayed. So let's move on to the last point. Let's move on from the present reality to a future certainty. Because that's where Jesus takes us, doesn't he, in his explanation of this parable in verses 36 to 43. He takes us to the end of the world. And he reveals himself there in those verses as the final arbiter of human destiny, the Son of Man. 
He brings us to the day of judgment. And make no mistake about it, such a day is coming. And it's only a heartbeat away for any one of us. C.S. Lewis describes it for us in one of his famous broadcast talks. He says, I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. God's going to invade, all right, and when that happens, it's the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. It'll be something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or ir irresistible horror into every creature. It'll be too late then to choose your sides. It'll be the time when we discover which side we've really chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, says Lewis, this moment is our chance to make sure we're on the right side. See, there's going to be, this is certain, there's going to be a future division of the human race. Jesus, you won't be judging Jesus on that day. You may be judging Jesus now as if you, you know, people say such silly things, don't they? Oh, can't wait to tell him a thing or two. <laughs> You, you may be judging Jesus right now, but let me tell you, my friends, ultimately Jesus is going to judge you. And that day is coming. And it's soon. Look what it says there in verse 41. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom everything that causes sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They'll throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. That's pretty graphic, isn't it? It's terrifying, really. Jesus doesn't mince his words when he talks about our eternal destiny. That's because he loves us, of course. The wheat and the weeds will be eternally separated, he says. The harvest will come, the wheat will be gathered into God's barn, and the weeds will be burnt up. Will be burnt up. It's picture language. I, I, I really think it is picture language. But the reality is more sobering than the picture. This is a massive warning to the human race. This is a massive warning to us this morning. Hell is a reality. No one spoke more frequently about hell than Jesus. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, he says. Everlasting regret, but no repentance. Eyes opened, but hearts not softened. That's hell. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, permanent, unrelenting anger and frustration against God. That's hell. And Jesus doesn't say this to frighten us. He says it to warn us. Do you notice that there in verse 43? He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He says these things to warn us. He who has ears, let him hear, he says. Verse 43. He's looking for a response. So let me ask you, my friends, if you're not yet a Christian, heed this warning. Take it as a challenge, not as a conclusion. See it as a, an invitation to life, not as a sentence of death. You've got a pair of ears, haven't you? I could even see some of your ears from here. <laughs> God's really blessed you with that pair of ears. Well, if you've got ears, hear, Jesus says. It's as simple as that. 
There's no secret to, to, to becoming a Christian. You just have to hear what Jesus is saying and respond to it. Two of the great um, Christian leaders in the 18th century were uh, John Newton. He, you know, he's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. And he never had the royalties for that. He would be a very rich man, wouldn't he, if he'd had royalties for that? John Newton, the converted slave trader. And William Wilberforce, the social reformer, the man who actually led the fight uh, to abolish slavery. They were the best of friends. Wilberforce moved in very high circles and uh, invited William Pitt. I think it's, there were two William Pitts. There was Pitt the Elder and Pitt the Younger. I suppose it's like Donald Trump Jr. And, you know, it's the, they were both prime ministers of Great Britain. But Pitt the Younger was, was a very famous... He became prime minister at the age of 24. Uh, a brilliant man. And uh, Wilberforce invited him... Uh, to go and, and hear John Newton pre preach. John Newton, the, the, the author of Amazing Grace. My dear Wilberforce, said Pitt, what was he so excited about today? I don't think I grasped it. Think of that. One of the most brilliant minds in England, listening to one of the greatest preachers of grace, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, and he didn't get it. He didn't, he had a massive IQ, but he didn't have years to hear. Not about your IQ, it's not, it's not about your, your, your place in society or, or, or whether you're part of a church. No, no, my friends, he who has years to hear, Jesus says, that's what it's about. And he, he didn't have years to hear, and I think he's regretting that now, don't you? And he'll regret it for all eternity, won't he? Hearing he didn't understand. Do you? Do you see yourself in this parable? See, the word parable in Greek means to throw alongside. Parabole or something like that. Excuse my Greek. It means to throw alongside. These parables are not Sunday school stories for children. They're hand grenades that Jesus is lobbing into enemy territory. Where, where the enemy is sowing his seed. Where the enemy is sowing wheat. And Jesus tells these stories. And it's like a hand grenade that he's, he's throwing into enemy territory. It's, it's like a time bomb that's set to explode in your mind. Just at the right moment. Not to destroy you. But to save you. And uh, see, these parables, Jesus is telling these imaginative stories, and he's throwing out this imaginative story alongside your life, and he's saying, Do you have years to hear? Can you see yourself here in this story? See, either you are a member of the royal family, a son of the kingdom, by grace, through faith, or you are a member of the devil's family. A child of wrath and a son of disobedience. A son of the evil one. Which one are you? Which family do you belong to? See, but he said, at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Jesus says, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. With whom will you be bundled on that day? Will you be found in the bundle of life? Bundled together with the Lord's people. Bundled together with those for whom Christ died. Will you be amongst the righteous who will shine like the sun?
So you say, I'm not sure. Well, make sure. There's nothing more important. Make your calling and election sure, Peter says. How? How do I do that? By trusting in Jesus. By turning to him. And trusting in him to save you from the judgment to come. Have you ever done that? John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, sent his, his, his Methodist evangelists out all over the world. He said, the world is my parish. Some of them came to Tasmania. Many of the, the, the chaplains at Port Arthur and in the other penal colonies were, were actually Methodists. They were evangelical Christians. Wesley um, averaged 15 sermons a week. He preached more than... I can just about manage one. Not very well. <laughs> Man, he did repeat his sermons a lot. <laughs> he preached more than 40,000 sermons. He traveled more than 250,000 miles on horseback before they had tarmac roads. And he kept a diary. He was meticulous about keeping... He was a very organized man, hence Methodism. And, and he kept a diary. And this is the entry in his diary, in his journal, for the 20th, 28th of May, 1742. We came to Newcastle, about six, and after short refreshment walked into the town. I was surprised. So much drunkenness, cursing and swearing, even from the mouths of little children. Do I never remember to have seen and heard before in so small a compass of time? Surely this place is ripe for... For what? What will you say? <laughs> How would you finish that sentence? See, our natural reaction would be to complete the sentence with something like this. Hell. Surely this place is ripe for judgment. But Wesley saw things differently. This is what he said in his diary. Surely this place is ripe for him who came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. That's it. That's what this parable is teaching us. When you look at the world... When you go out this week and uh, share your existence with other people who don't share the same worldview as you, when, when you go out into this world and look into this world, how do you see it? Ripe for judgment or ripe for Jesus? Ripe for Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, when you saw the multitudes, you had compassion on them. You wept over Jerusalem and pleaded with them to repent. You came not to condemn, but to save. The Bible tells us that judgment is your strange work. You do not delight in the death of the wicked. And Lord, we pray that, that you'd give us that same heart for lost souls. We believe that the fields are ripe for harvest, but the workers are few, we pray for the City Bible Forum and their evangelistic ministry in the city. We pray that you'd raise up more laborers to work with them. We pray that, Lord, for all our churches and for all the ministry at the university as well. And thrust us out into the world this week, we pray, to sow your word and to water it with our prayers. For Jesus' sake. Amen.